Well, Merry Christmas, Merry Cold Christmas, right? I want to welcome all of you at all six of our physical locations, four in northwest Georgia and two in uh, the Tennessee area. Just thank y'all for being here. I want to welcome those of you that are online as well, watching online. So however you're engaged, Merry Christmas. Glad that you are here as uh, we celebrate this incredible time of the year together with family, with friends, with our community, what God has done. And so I, I just want to jump into this and talk about something we all do at Christmas and how that relates to God. We all exchange gifts, and, and we give gifts for people. There's a big drive for that, right? It funds a lot of our economy. It creates some stress, as I was talking to some of you in the lobby about just navigating traffic and what do people want and what do we give to people that they actually need. But here's a question that I think we can wrestle with. What gift can we actually give God? And if you think about that, whatever your answer is right now, it says a lot about what you think about God or who you understand God to be and, and who, who you understand yourself to be. I think if we were to ask a lot of people on the street or just say, hey, did an interview, hey, what do you give God or what does God want from you? I think a lot of us might say he wants me to be a good person. He wants me to do good things. Some of us might take it a step further and say, hey, you know, he wants me to serve other people or he wants me to be obedient to his rules or to his commands. Maybe he wants some of our time, maybe some of our money. God, want, we can give those things to God. Some of us have this view that, hey, you know what, really my goal is to kind of keep God off my back, and so I'm going to do these couple of things, and that's going to keep God at a safe distance, and I'll be okay. And, and I think that's just a challenging question for us to wrestle with, but we're going to see, see that there is something we can give God. There is something every single one of us can give God, but it's not what we think. And let me just kind of unravel some of the things that we do. And here's an example. I don't know if y'all remember this. I was like in the Navy in college when O.J. Simpson had the trial of the century. O.J. Simpson, for those of you who don't know, a Hall of Famer in football, incredible athlete, and then was arrested for a double murder that he was, that he was acquitted of. And still an unsolved case. Some people believe he did it, but he got off. And so he was interviewed recently. And the interviewer kind of dances around the question, did you do it, did you not do it? But here's how the interviewer posed the question. He says, see, with a story like yours, you know, and you're the only one who really knows the truth about what happened. This is about 1995 when it occurred, but this interview occurred just recently. He said this, when you die, are you, are you like in any way scared to face God? Are you scared to face God? Because is there accountability there? What does it take to face God and, and, and not be scared? And here's, here's OJ's answer. He says, nope, I look forward to it. Yeah, as I said, I know where my weaknesses were, and I think I made up. Hopefully, I've made up for it and my, and my other deeds, but we'll see. So I look forward to it, but I'm not really sure, but I think I've done enough good to make up for the bad. That sort of God has scales, the bad things we've done, and the good things. And as long as the good outweighs the bad, then we're okay. So what I can give God to put me in God's favor is my good deeds. And those good deeds, if they make up for the bad deeds, will be okay. Right? And then you find a problem with that, though, when you actually check with God. Because God says this in Isaiah 64, 6. He says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So it's really God, that's really God's way of saying you can't be good enough, that you can't give your goodness to God because it would still fall short of who God is and his holiness. 
And so, you know, and then some of us are like, well, I can serve God, I can do good things and all this kind of stuff. And then you run into this in Acts 17 where the Word of God says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it since He is Lord of heaven and earth. And He doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve His needs. See that? We can't serve God for He has no needs. So how do you give a gift to someone who has no needs? Now, there is a gift you can give it, but how do you give a gift to someone who has no needs? He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. God satisfies every need. So, interestingly, we have one of the more famous Christmas stories. We have a Christmas story of some folks who travel a long way to give gifts to Jesus, And it's in their actions and in their giving of gifts that we're going to see what we actually can give God, a God who has no needs and God himself who satisfies every need. Matthew's gospel, first book of the New Testament, we'll begin reading in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, and they probably traveled about 600 or so miles, we believe. They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And what Matthew's going to set up for us is a great conflict about two kings, King Jesus and this other guy, King Herod. For we saw his star at, at its rising and have come to worship him. We've come to worship the king of the Jews. So when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him because the king was disturbed. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And they quote an Old Testament prophet written about four or five hundred years prior to this from the book of Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that further in that prophecy, it says that this ruler, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so in this prophecy, you have this statement about Jesus. This baby Jesus on Christmas morning is the true king, the promised king, and the eternal king. So the question that comes up in the scripture is, well, who is King Herod? Well, King Herod is a king that the Romans put in over the, over the Jewish people in, in Judea. He had ruled for about 40 years. So the reason he's disturbed is because he knows he's a usurper. He knows he's not the true king. He's not the promised king, nor is he the eternal king. And so the tension that Matthew sets up, which is a tension we'll feel in just a minute, is the tension between a king, Herod, versus the king, which at this time is Jesus. Now, one of the reasons I love the Bible is because I meet my own heart in the Bible. I see aspects of my life and my struggles and my battles and the battles that I see in our lives and in our society, they're right there. Because you see, all of us, right, we have this same battle right here. There's an area of your life where you want to be the king or queen or you want to be the person in charge. It could be of your total life. It could be of your fantasy football league, right? But there's an area of our lives or areas of our lives that we just want to control, that we want to call the shots, that we want to be the true king of that area of our lives. And then in other areas of our lives, sometimes don't we look for imperfect people 
than to lead us perfectly. And so there's this need for a king, and yet there's this desire that we should be the king. Now, for the Jewish people, this had caused a big ordeal in their history, big problem in their history. Because when God pulled the Jewish people out of Egypt, they began to ask God for a king, an earthly king. And God said, you don't need a king, you have me. And they insisted and they insisted. And finally, God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king, but here's what's going to happen. And as the king goes, you go. So you're only as good as the king you follow, which is true, right? Because couldn't we all, if I gave you the microphone, if you've lived long enough, you could come up here and say, hey, I followed a bad king. Whether that was yourself or the wrong crowd or you gave money or power or another group of people too much power or control over you or you gave a substance or something, social media, too much control over you. And it led you for a while and you were satisfied, but eventually you were bankrupt or you were broken or you were enslaved and it cost you something. Because we're only as good as the kings we follow. And so that's the tension in the text. And so what we see emerging right here is this. We see there's the king and the kingdoms that we seek and there's the king that God gives and the king that God actually is. And that's why Jesus' birth is actually a revolution. It's not a revolution like we might think of where there's military involved and violence and insurrection or, or things of that nature, but it is a revolution. And the revolution of Jesus' birth is aimed at our heart. And it's aimed at, hey, who's the king of our lives and who's the king of our heart? The king, a king or the kings we want or the king that God is? and the king that God has given, which is the baby king of Jesus, right? And then we start to see responses emerge in the story. So Herod's response is one of being very disturbed because he's actually threatened. So he concocts a plan. So he secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and, search, go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now, he has no desire to worship Jesus. He wants to remove Jesus. He wants to eradicate Jesus because Jesus is a threat to his kingdom. Even though Jesus is the true king, even though Jesus is the promised king, even though Jesus is the eternal king. You see, there's a little bit of Herod in me too, right? A little bit of Herod in all of us. Because when Jesus asks to be the king of your life or an area of your life that you would prefer you be the king over, Jesus is seen as a threat. And you and I have this battle. Do we surrender to Christ? Do we give Jesus the steering wheel? Do we put this on the table and let it come under his lordship and his leadership? And so I meet myself in the story because I've seen this battle in me. So it seems like right now we've got three responses. We'll get a four. Three responses to the revolution of Jesus' birth. The first response is simply this. There's ignorance. There's people in the city of Jerusalem, people in this region who are just ignorant to what God has done and what God is doing. Same as that we have today. 
There's people who are ignorant about what Christmas means and the implications. There might be some people here, and Christmas to you is tradition and time with your family. You don't see Christmas as a revolution or Christmas as the dawning of the true king and the king that God gives into our lives. So so hopefully today there will be some illumination and understanding of the real reason of the season and of the scope of who Jesus Christ actually is and wants to be for you. And interestingly, the religious people are simply indifferent to Jesus. There's great indifference to Jesus. Now, later on, later on, they'll get threatened, and then they'll help conspire with the Romans and put this Jesus on a cross. But you can be indifferent. You can be sort of neutral. I don't care. Jesus, okay, that works for some people, doesn't work for me, right? And then you have King Herod, who has outright hostility with, uh, with malvolent intentions toward Jesus Christ. So we have those responses, and then we come back and circle back to the wise men, and we see their response. So after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Literally, that would say exceeding joy, perhaps the greatest joy they'd ever known, the greatest happiness they'd ever had because they've encountered the Christ child, the king. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees. So that is a position of surrender. That is a position of submission. They worshiped him, and then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of different theories about what those represent and what those mean. I think we should just go with the simplest. These are high-value gifts in the first century, and they gave these treasures up to King Jesus. So the fourth response to this Jesus revolution, the kingship, the kingdom of Jesus, is recognition of who this child actually is and recognize why he's here. And they respond into surrender and devotion. Now, if I just said you need to surrender, most of us kind of clench up at that, right? We get nervous about surrender because what does that mean? Well, we're no longer the king. We're no longer the queen. We're no longer in charge. We're giving up some rights. We're giving up treasure like the, like the wise, people, wise men did. But they surrender, and they fall down in a posture of surrender, and it's the happiest they've ever been in their life. They're overwhelmed with joy because of their recognition of who Christ is. And then they give up these great riches. Why do they give up their treasure? Because King Jesus is no threat to our treasures when he becomes our treasure. When he becomes the treasure my heart locks on and I recognize my heart needs, he's no threat to my treasure so I can give up my treasure. See, they recognize that Jesus is the king God gives and the king they needed. And when you get underneath and look at some of the names of God that are given to God, we see something about King Jesus. Probably no clearer is this given than in a very familiar passage of Scripture because it's been made into so many powerful songs and music and, and hymns of worship, is the prophecy made about Jesus by the prophet Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years before his birth where it's prophesied that a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. We're still talking about kingdoms, right? 
and who's in charge. But he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, those four names that Isaiah mentions of God, of Jesus, are titles, are titles. So we have wonderful counselor that he's infinite in wisdom, mighty God, he's infinite in power, he's infinite in strength. He's eternal father. He's infinite in compassion and care and love. And he's the prince of peace. He will usher in what in the Hebrew would be shalom, which is the totality of human flourishing. As God originally intended it before we said, God, let us be king for a while. And then we made a mess of it. And so all of these names that Isaiah attributes, that that the wise men recognize in the baby Jesus... Those names are not just honorific, intended just to give titles to someone, kind of like the British royalty where they call people the Prince of Wales and this and that, and it's just all ceremony and pomp. These titles actually represent the total sufficiency of King Jesus to meet all our needs. The total sufficiency of King Jesus to meet all our needs. So for the wise men, they can part with their treasures. They can part with what they have because they recognize in Christ they have all they need. Say that again. They can give up what they have, treasure, control, because they have found the king they need. So in Jesus, we recognize that he is the king God gives, and he's the king that we all need. Which brings us to the, last, to the first question we started with, and we get to answer it right now. What is it you and I can give to a God who need, the God who needs nothing? What can we give to a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace? What can we give to him? Scripture has said he has no needs. Scripture has said our goodness is like a filthy rag in the eyes of a holy, pure, perfect God who is all-sufficient and all-supreme. So what can you and I possibly give to Jesus the only thing you can give to Jesus the only thing you can give to God and he'll accept it just like this is our need for him that's what we give to him our need for him is what we give to him Jesus I am a sinner and I cannot be good enough I need to give you my sins and ask you to be my savior Yes. Jesus, I have anxiety and stress where the word of God says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Yes. Wisdom, strength, guidance, love that's unconditional. Yes, yes, yes. Our need for him is what we give to him. I said all of us have something we can give to Christ, not your goodness, Our goodness is like filthy rags. There's no special class of spiritual people. In the kingdom of Jesus, hear me, it's okay not to be okay. In fact, the only condition we can have to come before God is that of need, that we need him. 
and that we recognize him for who he is and the kingdom that he gives. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to give you a little bit of silence for you to talk to God on your own. And you tell him what you need. But you have to be willing to give him the kingdom of your heart, of this area. Jesus, he's the king God gives. Jesus, he's the king we need. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is eternal father. He is prince of peace. Would you pray with me in his name? King Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, for that incredible gift of yourself. We thank you, God, for recognition that he is the king you give, but he's the king we need. So, God, on behalf of everybody that is gathered, everybody that is watching, there is not a single person that is not in need of you. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd bring conviction for folks who don't believe they need you. I pray you'd bring clarity for some people who are too proud to tell you they need you. I pray, God, you'd bring conviction to self-righteous religious people who think they're better than others or good enough and don't need the blood of your son covering their sins. I pray for those in depression and anxiety. I pray for those in grief and in confusion. I pray for those who need strength from you, strength beyond the strength that we have as human beings. I pray for those who need to know unconditional, faithful love, not conditional, finite love. I pray for those who need an identity that is not based on what they do, what they have, or what people say about them. I pray for those, God, who would just admit, God, I've been following a bad king. And often that's the person in the mirror. God, I've followed money or power or the world or my pride and ego. God, it's not led me to the great place. It's not led me to shalom. I need to be led by the Prince of Peace. God, there's all matter of need in the human condition in the human soul. But at Christmas, a king has been given, the true king, the promised king, the eternal king, the sufficient king. But Jesus, your revolution does not come by way of a sword or a gun or by way of violence. It comes when we recognize that we need you, like the wise men, and we're willing to surrender before you in overwhelming joy that we have found the king we need. And that king is you, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in your holy and mighty and incredible name. Amen.